0: Well, good evening, friends. Welcome to our Wednesday night study. Uh, thank you so much for taking time out of what I know is uh, a busy schedule and uh, spending this time on Wednesday evenings with us. Do something for me right now. If you wouldn't mind, go down and hit the share button. We say it every week. You never know who's going uh, to tune in, who's going to become a part of our uh, stream and how the Lord might use what we say or something that uh, some scripture we might read or study tonight. You just never know how that might be powerfully uh, important in their spiritual development, and that won't happen if you don't hit the share button. So right now, go down and share this. Uh, share this into your social media stream, and all of those who are your friends who happen to come across it might uh, might tune in. Well, very good. Let me uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll read some scripture. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for our time together tonight. Lord, uh, we bless you. We thank you for the opportunity to take your word and open it up, and to. Hopefully, Father, make it alive and real and impactful, uh, meaningful, Lord. Uh, Let it be hidden in us, uh, as the psalmist says. Uh, Father, let it just saturate our minds, that our minds might be washed and regenerated, made new. Uh, Let it shape and form our values, our virtues, our heart. Let our character be formed based upon the principles of your word. And Lord, certainly in the world that we live in today, it would sure be good if we had a bunch of people walking around who are constrained by and live in accordance and emulate what your word describes and what it pours into us. So help us to do that. Help us to be those people. Bless each one that's uh, watching this tonight by the stream. Lord, we do pray that you would give us give this the widest possible distribution. Lord, let people share it. Let it go all over our nation These truths, Father, in 1 John chapter 4, they are especially applicable to this very difficult season that our nation is enduring. We need to love one another, and Lord, we have no hope of that through legislative measures and through policies and governments and politicians. Lord, this is about people, and this is about our hearts, and so Lord, help us to apply these things to our lives tonight. We give you thanks. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to convict I ask you to convict me and to change me and shape me. We give you thanks for this opportunity, for all of that to happen in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you once again for being here. As I said before, in case you just tuned in, share the stream. Do it right now. Go down to the bottom and hit share. We're beginning in uh, verse 11. 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. Let me read uh, verses 11, 12, 13, and 14, and then we'll read 15 and 16 a little later. But 1 John Chapter 4, 11 through 14. John writes this. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the savior of the world. Let me read uh, verse 11 again, and then we'll comment on it. John says this, "Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. My goodness, we could spend we could spend the whole night just talking about that one verse. Certainly in the events of this last week and the things going on around the world, not only in the, uh, in the, the racial issues that our nation is dealing with, but even in the pandemic. Uh, the expression of love has, well, I've never lived in a time where it could be more meaningful, more impactful than the time that we live in right now. Such great need. And nothing is better in times of need than love and all of the different expressions of that. It's the salve for the hurts and the wounds and the division and the need and the fear and the anxiety. And goodness, we certainly have plenty of that In our world today. (coughs) Excuse me. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This verse mirrors Jesus' sentiment in Matthew chapter 18, verse 33. Now, the story in Matthew 18, uh, in case you don't know it, uh, you may not know the reference, but let me just real quickly recap the story. There are two servants. One of them owes a great, great debt, like a lifetime debt worth of earning. He owes that to his master. And another servant owes that servant just a few cents. So the servant that, is, uh, that owes the great amount goes before his master. He has every expectation well that his life is basically over. That uh, he's uh, perhaps going to be thrown into slavery. He's going to be sold. His family's going to be There's all kinds of things culturally that might have happened. And the master in his great mercy and his great love forgives all that that servant owes A tremendous, uh, the scripture gives the indication that it's a massive amount. That servant then goes out and sees this other servant that just owes him a few pennies and grabs him and chokes him and ultimately throws him into jail until he should pay the debt. And then word of that comes back to the master and it's that setting in which we read Matthew chapter 18, verse 33, where the master says, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. You see, that's the deal. The verse in 1 John chapter 4, verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, and it's not an if, we know that he did. And in fact, we're going to study that a little bit later. We could even, at least for the sake of this right now, say, because God so loved us, we ought to love one another. It's, It's about the position and There is no debt like the one that we owed, Christ. The amount of our sin, our unrighteousness, the the degree of our depravity. You say, no, I was a pretty good person. In comparison to what? Because the only comparison that matters is Jesus and his righteousness, the righteousness of God. And when we compare ourselves to that, we owe a... Just the the amount of difference there is overwhelming. It's a lifetime... a life is the only thing that would pay for it, and Jesus paid that. And because God loved us, we ought to love one another. It's one of the reasons why communion is such a significant thing to us. Jesus, the scripture says, on the night that he was betrayed, took the bread. He talks about the bread being being representing his broken body, and then he takes the cup, and he talks about the cup, and the juice being the wine being the symbol of his spilled blood. He's right on the cusp of incredible suffering and ultimate death that he does willingly. And what he admonishes his disciples to do is to remember that. And that in the remembering, it's almost like everything about who we are as Christ followers, everything about what we do and how we do it, everything about how we live is to be lived through the filter of Christ's sacrifice, through what we remember in communion. That's why it's so important that we remember it and that we not allow it to drift into the sort of the realm of sort of religious uh, mythology in our lives, but rather it stays central and we live our lives through the remembrance of the immensity of what Christ did for us, for the great love that he displayed for us. And it's in that context that verse 11 makes sense. Beloved, if God so loved us, we are also ought to love one another. We know that he did. Paul says some other things about that. Uh, sort of the same uh, sentiments. In Romans chapter 13 verse 8, Paul says this. Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. That's what we owe each other is that we would love. Why? Because Christ loved us. Paul speaks about the relation between husbands and wives in Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 28, when he says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. The context of that scripture is that uh, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave his life for her. It is this, this whole sentiment about what it is to love as a believer has to do with what Christ has done for us. And even though debt is, has sort of a negative connotation... The debt of love that we owe to others because of the immense love that Christ has poured out upon us. Uh, Notice what Paul said that God had taught us. Notice that Paul had said that God taught us how to love one another in 1 Thessalonians Chapter 4, verse 9, Paul writes this. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. How did he teach us? He demonstrated it. He he let Christ go and die on the cross. We've we've learned what real love looks like. And we've learned what it feels like to be undeserving of that. We don't just love those who deserve it. Because we didn't. We love as God loves and we love in the manner that he taught us to love. Uh, one more. Notice, if we put verse 11, we, we started tonight in 1 John 4, 11. Let's go back and put verse 10 with verse 11. And there's just a lot of clarity that it brings. Listen to this. It says this. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved... If God so, or in the way that, the so. If God so loved us, in other words, God loved us this way, we ought also to love one another. Um, Why? Because Jesus came and was the payment for our sins. It all rises and falls on that. If you maintain the understanding of what Christ did for you, it affects everything else in your life. And I bet you've experienced that. When you maintain that, you're naturally more forgiving. When you maintain that, you're naturally more of a servant. When you maintain that, there's a sweetness, there's a goodness that emanates from your life. When you, when you allow the knowledge of what Christ has done for you, let me put it in a little different position. When, when you feed your mind and your heart on what God has done for you, you express that love to others. When you feed your mind and your heart on the things of the world, be it through any, any source, eventually that message of Christ's love dwindles, and the cares of this world become the thing that's most important. What's going to happen to my stuff? I deserve something better. I don't deserve to be treated that way. Hey, I've got something better. And all of a sudden, we're not loving. We are earthly. You've got to keep, we've got to keep the knowledge of what Christ did for us center right before our eyes. I, I use the word filter. It's like a filter that we see the rest of life through. And that's what you've got to do. You've got to keep your mind and your heart pure, thinking about the things of God. Um, God has indeed taught us how to love one another. And we do so by maintaining the fervency and the relevance of God's love in our lives and minds. In other words, we remember. We keep it in there. We don't let it dwindle. We We don't let the things of God drift from our minds. And when we feel that happening, what do we do about it? What's the course of action? Well, there are two things. When you feel your love growing cold, when you feel the fervency, when you know that it's been some time since you spent time in the presence of the Lord, or if you identify and if you'll remember this, much of 1 John is about being able to measure, taking the subjective nature out of a measurement of whether or not you're really loving, whether you really have God's presence in your life, whether you're a believer, whether you live in the light of the dark, When you, when you... When you measure that and you find that that has grown cold, there are two things you can do. Two very practical, prescriptive things. And preachers have been saying them for years. What are they? God's word. Get into God's word. And secondly, spend time in God's presence. The two of those, the Holy Spirit making his word come alive, forms this, well, this filter through which you begin to see life. And you begin to understand things through what Christ has done for you. Let's go on. 1 John chapter 4, verse 12. Really interesting theological truth here. It says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now, some very sort of weighty theological things here. And it sort of speaks to that filter and that, that presence of God and that seeing life through the sacrifice of Jesus. You see, you and I face a battle every day. It's the battle that exists between sight and faith. I, I can see this coffee cup. It's about half full. It's got coffee in it. I don't have faith in it. I see it. It's real in my mind, in my, pers- in, in, in my perception. It is not something that I just hope is there. I see it. There's no faith involved. This table is here. This iPad is here. This chair is here. But there are things that I only hope exist. In fact, Hebrews 11, faith is the substance, the thing that makes real those things that I just hope for. And God, almost in his entirety, at least for you and I right now, doesn't live in the sight realm. In some ways he does, but not in most ways. He doesn't live in the sight realm. He lives in the faith realm. And because he lives in the faith realm, because we relate to him and we engage God through faith, sometimes it can be difficult to keep that filter of seeing the world through the love of Jesus and through what he's done for us. The scripture says that no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. So if we're able to keep that what Christ has done for us, relevant in our life. There's a reward for that. If even though we can't see him, we still love one another, even though it's faith, not sight. If I can still keep God relevant in my life, if I can keep him in front of my eyes, if I can push the world out. One of the, you hear me talking about it and I talk about it, well, I talk about it a fair amount. I don't listen to music, almost any music, other than godly music. Why? Because it's part of that filter for me. It carries a message and oh, it doesn't matter. It does matter. Every piece you put into your heart and mind, no matter how small the degree, every message that you put in that acknowledges the lordship and the messianic nature of Christ is significant on a good form and everything that you take in that denies that. doesn't have to objectively deny that. It, it, it It can just deny some of the principles. Everything that you do, has some bearing upon who you are in that ability to see the world through that lens of what Christ has done for you. Why? Because we don't yet see God. There's a couple of things that I want to establish. Very important theological truths here. First of all, God is not seen by humans. We see the evidence of him and there are times when God reveals himself. I'm not saying God has never been seen, but what John is saying is that we live in a realm where we don't walk around holding hands with the physical form of our Heavenly Father. He's with us, but we don't see him with our physical eyes. He is not a human. He dwells in a state that is not our state right now. And yet, watch this, he remains personal. He, we can't see him. He doesn't have flesh like we have right now. You, you can't reach out and touch him and feel the physical sensation of him. And yet, he is still personal. Why is that significant? Let me just use one example from one other religion. There are 99 names for God in Islam. I, I don't know that personally. I read that. So if that's erroneous, uh, it's in a book. <laughs> all right. But of the 99 names of God, not one of them is father. Muslims don't refer to God as father. Of all 99 different names they refer to him by, not one of them is father. Almost all other major religious thought place God, not just just Islam, but almost all other religious thought places God in an unapproachable, distant position to his people. The fact that he's invisible. Yeah, God's invisible. He's not here. He's He's far, I mean, their whole concept, the whole concept of who God is, is that He's removed. He's untouchable. He's even perhaps unfeeling. Lots of different concepts. And yet, 1 John, while it does say that He's not like us, he, 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 we don't see Him. He lives in an invisible state. Even though we can't see Him, now get this. he up abides in us and his love is perfected in us. He abides and love is perfected. Wow, two two things that a, a distant, untouchable, removed God can't do is perfect his love in us and abide in us. He's not far away. He's different than us, but he's not distant. Very important. While 1 John four twelve does say that we cannot see God, he abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Let me real quickly touch on those words. The Greek word for abide is the Greek word meno, mino, or meno, and it literally means pretty much the way that we use the word to reside. To remain unchanged in a certain state. He comes in and he remains in. He abides with us. He's not coming and going. He's taken up residence within you. And because of that abiding nature, his love, his love now. Watch this. It's a big word. is perfected in us. Perfected uh, is, the, uh, is the Greek word teleo. And it, 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 it means completed, finished. It, it does use the word perfected in the definition of it. It is made perfect in us. So God lives in us, abides unendingly in us, and by that abiding presence, he perfects, makes perfect his love. It's not lukewarm. It's not, it's not come and go. It's not something that you do when you feel like it. It's not a thing that, no, his, his love, because of his abiding nature in us, is perfected. Wow. The, those statements have two things in them. They have locus, location, location and they have quality. There are two statements. Where does all of this take place? The locus in you and I. I love the corporate church. I love the organizational church, the assemblies of God, the the things that we're able to do because of that. But this doesn't say that these things happen there. They happen in you. They happen in me, the place That love is perfected so that it might be displayed to the world is not organizational. It's in you. It's in me. The responsibility and the opportunity doesn't reside in the organization of the church. It resides in the men and women, boys and girls who are Christ's followers. That's, That's where the abiding takes place. That's where he lives. When we come together, he comes here with us. And yes, he is everywhere, but he does his work in you and I. That's the location of it, the locus of it. It's in us. And what does that abiding nature do in relation to that love? It perfects it. The quality of that. Remember, statement of location and quality. What's the quality of what he does? It is superb. It is. It, it, it is. It is supreme. It is spectacular. Whatever statement, whatever adjective you use, the kind of love that God works in us becomes perfect so all of those little phrases we use sometimes, well, you know, I just it's just who I am. You know, you kids get out of my yard, that old curmudgeon kind of Christianity. That doesn't sound like perfected love, does it to you? It does it to me. When I'm, when I'm feeling a little weary and I'm, I don't feel like I want to be loving, that sounds like flesh. Do, do I still fight with that? Will you still fight with it? Yes, but God's working. He's perfecting. He's bringing out something good. Rivers of living. Not not some, you know, sometimes the water's sweet, sometimes it's sour. Sometimes it's good. No, rivers of living water that flow out of us. And we're going to see that that all happens because of the spirit. But it is, what's the location? It's in you. What's the quality of what he does? It is good. So if you find your, remember, there's also this litmus test. If you find yourself sometimes just being a grouch all day, maybe you ought to, Sort of check the oil on your spirituality. Check, are are you abiding? Is God abiding in you? Have you you removed the filter? Have you allowed the world to creep in? Maybe those are things that you ought to look at. He lives in us and his love is perfected in us. It's a statement indicating an intimacy and an industry within us. God's working something through you. Look at 1 John 4, 13. Look at verse 13. By this we know we abide in him. Where does this come from, this, this work? By this we know we abide in him and him and he and us because he has given us of his spirit. Just last week we talked about uh, Pentecost and what it means to be filled with the spirit of God. Number one quality is God perfects his love. I'm amazed at some of the things people say and attribute to the work of the Holy Spirit that have no love in them. Shame on you and me when we do that. It's not possible. If it's the Spirit of God working in you, it's not milk toast. It's not all except anything. It can be firm. It can be, be, be immovable. It can be full of conviction and strength. But, it, but, it, but it's not filled with hate. And it's not filled with divisiveness. If it's the Spirit of God coming out of you, It's going to be filled with love. The tone, the tenor of who and what you are, the way you you relate to the world is going to reveal love if it's the Spirit of God working in you. Once again, the presence of love is the litmus test for the presence of God in a person's life. Let me, let me ask a question here, and I, I think it's as as I was getting this ready, I was thinking about. Is it fair to distinguish? Is it fair to distinguish between those who know about God and his love and those who abide in it? Is it fair to make two different divisions or maybe a scale that all of us are on at sometimes? I think it is fair to do that. I think there will always be a flesh in us that we fight against. Even though God is abiding in you, and even though he perfects his love through you, until you shed this mortal body, you're still going to have a fleshly nature that's struggling against that perfected love in you. So is it fair to distinguish between those who know about God? Yeah, I know God. I know Jesus is his son. I know that I know that love is how Christians are supposed to behave. I know I'm supposed to come to service. I'm supposed to, you know, use of my talents and bless the kingdom of God and tithe and 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 tell others about. I mean, I know all those things. Is it possible to know all of that and and be really unloving? Yes, it is. Now, I didn't say that it was possible to be what Christ has called you to be and be that way or and I don't think you and I ever have the ability to judge the degree. I mean, when does, when does faith leave? When is salvation not there? I, I don't have the ability to do that. Neither do you. But this does give us a litmus test. Is there love? And does that love reveal itself? Um, but I do believe people live on a, on a continuum of surrender to that. Is it, watch this, let me, let me say something else. Is it possible to not be loving and go to heaven? You know, from my understanding, yes, God's grace, God's grace covers the multitude of our sins. We'll all be struggling with this. Our goal, however, is to let God abide in us, let that flesh be put down, and let God's love be perfected in you and I. I want you to notice that in verse 13, it's God's Spirit in us that produces this love. And love's presence is also an indicator of the present of the Spirit's presence. So Spirit-filled people ought to be loving people. You operate in the gifts of the Spirit. Love ought to be ever-present. The Spirit of God overflowing in the baptism of the Holy Spirit and someone being used in the gifts is an indication. Hey, man, I'm, I'm topped off here. I'm full up. I'm, this is overflowing out of me. Well, you can't be filled up with God's presence and be some sort of unloving, unkind, unforgiving, ungenerous, ungracious person. Those theologically won't go together. And that's part of the reason and part of the justification for God using John to write these things down. It gives us a non-subjective method to check how we're doing in God. Um, look at Romans chapter 5, verse 5, speaking about the Spirit's work in us and love. It says this, And hope does not put us to shame. Romans 5, 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts. How? Through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So you can be filled up with God's Spirit and manifest the gifts of the Spirit and be unloving. Why? Because it's the Spirit that brings that love. It's the Spirit that empowers that love. It's the Spirit that perfects that love, and you're faking it. Something else is going on if, uh, if there's no love. I said it. You can write it down. People that manifest the gifts of the Spirit and aren't loving, those aren't genuine gifts of the Spirit. So says Pastor Roy. All right? Call them on it. Hey, wait a minute. You were speaking in tongues and interpreting. You were giving a word of prophecy, and then you're posting all this hateful stuff on Facebook. <laughs> Maybe you ought to post that up. Hey, that doesn't sound very loving. Supposedly, you're a great man or woman of God. Maybe you ought to. Anyway, no, don't put it on Facebook. Just, just, just take note of it, all right? Love's got to be there. It's the Holy Spirit that makes us aware of God's presence in us, and us in him. Listen to this again. If we read verse 13 again, by this we know. How do I know? By this we know that we abide in him and him in us. Once again, a check, a a test. How can you know? Because he's given us his spirit and that spirit's perfecting love in us. It's the Holy Spirit that makes us aware of God's presence in us and that we're in him. It, it once again speaks to that lens that we see things through. His spirit keeps that lens of Christ's sacrifice. I'm in him. He's in me. There's no way I can, I, I, can't, I can't allow myself not to keep my eyes fixed on him, the author, the finisher of my faith. I see the world through the lens of the word of God and the spirit of God. And if that lens is removed and I start seeing it through the flesh, wait a minute, the spirit lets me know you're not seeing it straight. It's the spirit that confirms These things in you and I. Failure to love. And there's a really interesting correlation to 1 Thessalonians 5.19 here. Uh, Failure to love is resistance to and perhaps even squelching the Holy Spirit in a believer's life. Do you know 1 Thessalonians 5.19, Paul says, uh, quench not the spirit. Um, maybe, Maybe you have always heard that verse. In in connection to somebody starts to give a message in tongues and somebody says stop oh no he's he's quenching the spirit that's not the context that First Thessalonians five nineteen it does speak about prophecy there and 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 I believe there is absolutely a an indication that we're to open ourselves to the fullness of God's presence and the manifestation of the gifts and all of that but you can also apply it here if you in your own life say I'm not going I'm not going to love him I'm not going to love them. Part of the Spirit's manifestation in your life is God's love. We've read it here in 1 John. And if you resist that, no, I will not love them. They've treated me too poorly. They have been too unkind. I've been too hurt. That's flesh. We all have it. I'm not dismissing its power over us. But if the Holy Spirit begins to draw you and you say, no, I will not love. I will not forgive. I will not be generous. That's also Quenching his spirit. Spirit's trying to draw you into that perfected love that the father has for us. Failure to love is resistance to and perhaps even squelching the Holy Spirit in a believer's life. And as I said, we most often interpret 1 Thessalonians 5.19 in relation to spiritual gifts. But not loving might actually be more of what Paul is telling us not to, not to do. Don't stop the Holy Spirit from drawing you into love. 1 John 4.14, let's read it quickly. And we have seen and testify... That the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Really interesting verse here because it feels a little out of place. It's a statement. Now, it fits as well because there is this, John is saying that, listen, the, the love that we have, we have learned because of what Christ did for us. What John is doing is he's like giving a witness to this. And I'm telling you that happened, he says. And we have seen, now the we is interesting, it's almost like a statement of his apostolic nature and the existence of those who were there, not just me, but we, there was a group of us who saw it and we testify that the father indeed sent his son to be the savior of the world. I was there. I watched him hang on the cross. I watched him die. I saw him resurrected. I watched him ascend. And I'm testifying to you that all of this stuff I'm saying about the messianic nature of Jesus and his... Uh, his right uh, claim to be the savior of the world. I saw it. It happened. And that testimony should weigh heavy upon us as we think about how we should love one another. Two more verses. Verse 15. Interesting here. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, joined right to verse 14, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God God abides in him and he in God. Now, is that as simple as saying, Jesus is the son of God. I just confessed it. Now, God abides in me and I abide in him. Jesus is the son of God. I put it on social media. Jesus is the son of God. Can I get a little help bringing glory? Can I get some likes for Jesus? I've confessed it. So therefore, God abides in me. That's not what John is saying. This is not just an expression of words that John is speaking about. There is a depth here, and you have to dwell on it a moment to, I think, get the full effect of it. Confessing Jesus as God's son in the context that John is using this word is not just an expression of words. Rather, it is an embracing of the truth of that confession. He is the son of God, and I'm in right standing with that knowledge. It is an embracing of his lordship. He is the one and only son of God and my life reflects that I get it. How about you? It's more than an expression of words. It is an embracing of his lordship. It is an embracing of his messianic authority and his deity, all of those. He is God and because of who he is, There is an impact. There's a transformative work on my life, in my mind, in my action, in my family, in my future, in my past, in my presence. I don't just say, yep, Jesus is the Lord and I go do whatever I want. That's a lie. No, John is saying that if you have confessed that and your life has been impacted by that, the reciprocal nature of that or the reciprocal blessing of that is that God comes to abide in you. Now, that makes sense. You can't just say, Jesus is Lord, and then all of the presence of God abides. No, there's, there's a, it only makes sense in the context that it's an acceptance of his lordship, that it's a recognition of his messianic authority and his deity. And when you do that, And when you lay your life down in reference to who Jesus is, you become part of the family of God. God abides in you, and then you abide in him. It's interesting, too, that this acceptance of all that Jesus is results in God abiding with you. And the indication here is Trinitarian, that Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We've seen all of those in these writings in 1 John That the fullness of the Godhead resides within you. Then love is perfected. All of the work of the Spirit begins to take place in you and I. All of God lives in you. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Wow. What's What's it mean to have the fullness of the Godhead dwell in you? Mm. Lord, let that grow in us. Let Let that increase. One more verse, verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Once again, it's that acceptance of the nature of who Christ is. If you have come to live in that. We have, because of what Christ has done for us, we have come to know, John says, and we have come to believe. There's a, there is a, there is an increase, you know, and then you believe. More than belief speaks to faith, and faith alters behavior. Faith is that which expresses itself. There is no faith without a corresponding expression through your life. Let me say that again faith alters behavior you can believe but john says we have come to believe to know and to believe you can know but once you begin to manifest faith and faith begins to grow in you and you begin to accept the fullness of the messianic nature of christ and his lordship and his deity then god begins to work in you we have come to know and to believe the love that god has for us i I know of his love. I have seen what Christ did. I've accepted his sacrificial death for me. And now I understand that that's all motivated by God's love. Why? Because God is love. Now, sometimes we want to pick that God is love out and say, God accepts anything because he's love. Yeah, but do you see how all of that builds upon the recognition of the lordship and the deity and the messianic nature of Jesus? You can't push that aside and say, I'm the Lord, and because God is love, he and I are good. No. You reject the messianic nature of his son. You reject the deity of his son. You reject the sacrificial atoning death of his son, and God does not abide with you. You reject Christ's teachings about who we are and who he is, how we live in this world, how we relate to one another. That's part of his messianic Nature That's part of his lordship. You reject that and you don't get the abiding presence of God and you don't get to abide in his love. It's not my opinion. That's the teachings of the scripture. He's the Lord. But we have come to know him and we have come to believe. And because of that, we understand God's great love for us. Love is the ultimate revealer of God in a life. Let me leave you with that. Love, the presence of genuine love for others, is the ultimate revealer, the litmus test, the the indicator that God resides in a person. The juxtaposition of that, the absence of love, I think, is also the ultimate revealer of the absence of God in a life. We are called to know God's love, to let it be perfected in us, And then to be dispensers of it in the world we live in. And as I said when we began this, there's never been a time when the world more needed of people walking around, walking around, perfected in God's love and expressing that out into the world in which we live. It's the thing that changes the world. And that's the thing that you and I are called to do. Well, this has been good tonight. Thank you so much for being here with me. Join us uh, Sunday morning, if you haven't already heard. We'll be live and in person. We're opening church back up Sunday, June the 7th. Uh, If you haven't already seen the video that we prepared, talking about the different things that will be a part of that. Lots of uh, constraints upon us, both numerically, as well as uh, CDC guidelines about masks and hand washing and and those sorts of things, social distancing. We think we've covered all of that. Uh, But please go find that video. It's on the church website. It's on the church Facebook page. Uh, I've shared it. You can find it on mine. Pastor Chris has as well. Both campuses open. Uh, both services here at the Alton campus, 830 and 1030. Very important that you go watch. The doors will not open to the to the building until 15 minutes before those services. No, uh, no congregating in the halls. We'll ask you to wear a mask. If you don't have one, we'll provide one. When you come in, uh, hand washing and hand sanitizing stations. No children's ministry, no cafe, no coffee, no donuts. Really no time in which we're going to all hug necks and shake hands. I know that's very different, but it's going to be a very different service. But we will be able to be together and sing and worship and and lift up the Lord. When the service is over, we'll ask you to quickly exit the building and move back to your cars and, and head home. Because we have another service coming in, and we're going to disinfect and clean everything, and we can't have people hanging around the building in order to get that done. So lots of different things about Sunday. Go find the video. It's about eight minutes long. Watch that. It'll give you everything you need to know. God bless you. Thank you so much for being here. We hope to see you in person at one of the two campuses. But if you can't be in person, we want you to know that we'll still be streaming. Everything will be streamed. You can still enjoy service there from the comfort of your home. We hope that you do and that you'll either invite a friend to come join you in service here or to join you online. God bless you. Have a great night. We'll see you again soon. Bye-bye.